from KVMR and in partnership with Freed, this is Disability Rep. To me, disability pride is loving yourself regardless, accepting your disability, accepting it as part of your uniqueness and your amazingness and your ability, your diversity. Today, a conversation on disability pride with two deputy directors at the California Department of Rehabilitation. My disability has informed all of the decisions in my life, and it has made me who I am as a human being, and that I'm proud of that, and I love that. And You know, if somebody came up to me tomorrow and offered me a pill that would take my whole disability away and I could do everything that everybody else could do, I don't think I would probably even take it. That's all coming up right here on Disability Wrap. Stay tuned. Welcome to Disability Wrap. I'm Carly Pacheco. July was Disability Pride Month, and to celebrate, we bring you a conversation between two women executives with significant disabilities at the California Department of Rehabilitation, or DOR. Anna Acton, the former executive director of Freed and former Disability Rep host, is now DOR's Deputy Director of Independent Living and Community Access Division. Last month, she sat down with Kim Rutledge, the Deputy Director of Legislation and Communications at DOR, for a wide-ranging conversation about disability, disability pride, and self-acceptance. Today on Disability Rep, we air an extended version of their conversation. We hear Kim speak first. You know, we're both female executives with disabilities, um, working in a department that serves people with disabilities. And I think that disability pride is, well, it's a wonderful thing. It's also sometimes a really complicated thing for people. So, and I think that you and I come come to the same place as colleagues and friends from very, very different backgrounds to get to where we are today. So um, why don't you start out by telling me a little bit about your disability, um, how you acquired it, um, and what the beginnings were like for you? I actually acquired my disability when I was a freshman in high school, and um, I was in a car accident um, that resulted in um, a spinal cord injury. Um, and I've been using a wheelchair ever since, uh, to get around. Um, I also had a bunch of internal injuries, um, in the accident. So, which resulted in me being a type one diabetic. So I also have those kind of chronic health condition pieces that I manage on a daily basis. Um, so yeah, freshman in high school and, uh, really ended up being a major life-changing moment, um, for me, my family, my community, um, and really, um, basically changed the trajectory of my life, as you may imagine. Wow. That must've been a really, really difficult thing to go through when you were, um, only what, 14, 15 years old. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I spent my 15th birthday in the hospital and, you know, that's a really interesting time in your life anyways, right? When you're going into high school, you know, young woman, all the pressures of, you know, um, that come with just moving towards, you know, being an adult. Yeah, it was pretty, it was a pretty intense time of my life for sure. So what was it like when you got out of the hospital and had to go back to school? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. So I was partway through my freshman year when the car accident occurred. And so I actually didn't um, finish my freshman year um, and went, ended up doing, uh, was in the hospital for a couple of months and did physical therapy um, and then ended up doing summer school so that I can make up my freshman year um, and then go into my sophomore year. Um, actually for me, um, it was a big adjustment. I lived um, in a very rural area and I took a bus to school prior to um, the accident. Um, it was about a 30 minute bus ride to school. Um, and so some of the first kind of challenges at that time for me were trying to understand, you know, how I was going to be able to get to school. But even beyond that, it was really interesting because just it was really hard for my parents. One, the guilt of feeling like, you know, their daughter who's a minor got in this accident and the, her, you know, my life was forever ch- going to be changed. There was a lot of um, kind of conversation and, and, and I would say misunderstanding at this point in my life that I was going to have to be on disability benefits for the rest of my life. Um, I would never have a job. Um, and I would need 24 seven care for the rest of my life. That was actually the perception that my family had at that time. Um, my parents were upset. My grandparents were upset. Um, it was, you know, they started putting things together honestly for me so that I would be able to have that reality with the expectation. I would never work again. I would need 24 seven care, special needs trusts were set up, um, so that I could maintain my benefits and, um, the home had to be remodeled, right? Because my, my home was not wheelchair accessible. Um, um, bathrooms remodeled, bedrooms remodeled, the whole downstairs remodeled. Um, so there's a lot of adjustments um, that happened. And then just trying to navigate like the durable medical assistive technology world. Um, and I was an avid horseback rider. And the only thing I wanted to do was get back on my horse (laughs) after the injury. And everyone was like, what? This is just not going to happen. But I do remember one year at the one year mark post injury um, is when the doctor said I could get on a horse again. Um, And I did that day. I remember my friends hoisting me onto the back of the horse. (laughs) And that was sort of a huge moment in my life where I started feeling a little bit more like myself, honestly. Well, you, that story definitely puts the phrase, get back on the horse into a whole new context. (laughs) You know, it's interesting, right? Our disability experience, you know, some of us have, um, we're born with a disability, some acquire it at some point in their life. Um, So for you, your story into the disability world, world, is really different, right? There wasn't a traumatic experience. Tell us about that. Right. So I was born with a condition called arthrogryposis multiplex congenita. And essentially what that big, long three word phrase means is that I have a lack of, or a weakness of the joints that connect my muscles in my arms and legs. So it predominantly, so for me, it's, everyone who has arthrogryposis is affected by it a little bit differently. For me, I have very little use of my arms. So I do everything with my feet. So I write, I type, I eat, put on makeup, 
basically whatever needs to be done, I do with my feet. Um, and I also uh, don't have the ability to walk. So I use a power wheelchair. And the thing about my, my disability, I mean, the origin story I've mostly learned from my parents because I, I came, they did not know while I was in utero that I was going to have a disability. And I was born and grew up in a small town of 8,000 people in the middle of rural Kansas. And I was born in the rural hospital at 1130 at night. And I was born breech. My arm was broken during delivery. And the doctors were telling my parents, you know, we don't even we don't know what's wrong with her. We don't know what this is. She may not live through the night. So I was transferred to the bigger city medical center. Um, my first car ride was in a ambulance when I was just a few hours old. And so I was transferred to a NICU um, in Wichita, Kansas, where I hung out for the first three weeks of my life. And to hear my parents talk about my time in the NICU, um, they said that there were a lot of babies in there that had a lot of really serious problems. And I was just kind of, I couldn't use my arms and I looked a little different, but I was chilling. I was basically eating, crying, sleeping, doing all the things that babies do. And at the end of that three week period, when they did come to a diagnosis of my condition, my parents, this was the seventies, my parents were actually told, you know, if you don't want to take her home, there's a place for her. Like they were going to essentially at that point, probably institutionalize me or put me into foster care or something like that. And my parents were lucky for me, extremely offended. And they're like, no, that's our baby. We're taking our baby home now. So, and that was probably the first advocacy that they had to do for me. And so for me, I grew up in this, as I mentioned, this really small town in the middle of Kansas. Um, I was the first kid in my school system with a physical disability who did not need special education for any type of developmental disability. And they didn't know what to do with me. They were like, okay, well, I guess we'll just put her in the classroom and give her an assistant. And, and so this was just sort of my entire growing up. I learned a lot about advocacy really from watching my parents. And at the same time, we were you know, navigating me being this child with a disability in this entire a family without anybody with a disability, a community without anybody that had a disability. And so um, it was it was rough, but I also think that it's it's part of what really drove me to want to do the type of work that I do now. Yeah, advocacy ends up being a big piece um, for for all of us. Um, you know, I think for, for me, the advocacy started immediately after that, you know, my car accident and acquirement disability. Um, you know, it's interesting you mentioned that you didn't have um, a lot of mentors or other people with disabilities. You were kind of like blazing the way, it sounds like, for accessibility in a rural Kansas town and school. That's um, true. The only people, I mean, when I was growing up, the only other kids I knew with disabilities were the ones that I went to summer camp with. Um, I went to a summer camp once a year um, for a week with other kids from other communities in my area who had disabilities. Most of them had some form of muscular dystrophy. Um, and I made 
you know, friends that I still have to this day there, Mm -hmm. but we, and most of us lived in our own little small rural communities and had to figure things out, you know, apart, but together and having those relationships was so beneficial to me, especially when I decided to move to another state and go to college after I got out of high school and I had to learn how to navigate attendant care and finding accessible housing and all of these things that I had never had to really think about before. And so, yeah, not having that mentorship, not having adults. I didn't have adults in my life who had disabilities. There was not a single adult that I could look up to through my whole childhood who had a job, who had a family, who lived independently. And so when you were talking about when you first had your accident and your family was making financial preparations for you to to never be able to work or be independent, my family was advised to do a lot of those same things. There was a special needs trust. There were all these different things that were set up for me. And even though I did go away from for college and lived independently, there was always that fear that something would happen and I would need that safety net to fall back on. I can't blame our parents for that because when you don't have people, when you don't have adults, with disabilities that kids can look up to, those assumptions are made. And I went through a phase probably in my 20s where I was really angry at the way that my parents handled some things. But then I realized as as I got older and as I became a parent myself that they were doing the best they could. And they were figuring things out the best they could with with what they had, which which really was not that much. Yeah. Well, what's interesting. So when I was first uh, became disabled, I, the only person that I could think of in my life that I knew that had an obvious disability was a neighbor in front of my parents. And he, um, his name was Sam Dardick and he had polio, um, contracted polio as a child, used the manual wheelchair and, you know, was just this amazing human and built his home from his wheelchair, raised his children, um, and ended up starting um, the first center for independent living in our, or the only, first and only center for independent living in our area. And so while my parents were sort of getting this messaging um, from the doctors and kind of the social worker side of things that I was gonna never work and, (laughs) you know, not necessarily live, you know, have a family and, you know, be on benefits, um, this other influence was there, right? And, and ended up being kind of my mentor. It ended up being the person that I was really critical for me to be able to see doing their daily life and be able to then help me envision what my life would be like moving forward with a disability. And so that ended up being an amazing role model that I'm so grateful to have had the opportunity So um, we're in July, which is Disability Pride Month. And I have to be honest that this is something I'd never even really heard of until just a few years ago. And I was like, what, huh, really? Disability Pride? So, and so it's kind of taken me some time to sort of come to to acceptance around Disability Pride. So why don't you, I feel like you, I look to you, even though we're about the same age, I look to you as being someone who is way more experienced with like the disability world than I am. So what is disability pride mean to you personally? I mean, 
it comes down to just loving yourself. <laughs> um, but I would say, you know, the journey to being comfortable and proud of who you are, including your disability, is a very different journey for each and every one of us, really. I mean, for me, it was, you know, it wasn't until about five years post acquiring my disability that I started to really come to terms with it and not think about it every day. And I started really moving forward with my life. Um, prior to that, I would cry a lot. It was really hard. All I could think about was this new reality for me. And it really took some time. But even, you know, in my story, you hear when I go to, you know, get my first job and was reluctant to work for a disability specific organization. Right. So it's an ongoing process. And, you know, working at a center for independent living with individuals, um, I've seen it so many different times in so many different ways where, you know, you've seen one disability, you've seen one disability, you've seen one person and how they manage their disability, you've seen one person. You know, I've seen people who are born with a disability that really don't identify as having a disability even later in life. Um, I've seen people who acquire a disability. Um, um, at an older age and really struggle from a long time to kind of move on, so to speak, from, you know, from that trauma that occurred to living life um, with a disability um, and, and, and everything in between, right? I've seen people acquire their disability and be able to really move forward quickly um, and others that, that don't. And so to me, disability pride is loving yourself regardless. We all have different issues in our lives. Um, some of them are really obvious. I wear my disability, you know, <laughs> on my wheelchair. When I go down the street, people are like, oh, the girl in the wheelchair. I'm sure you can relate to that. Just um, a little bit. <laughs> other, yeah. <laughs> Other people may have a mental health disability, a hidden disability, right? It may even be discriminated against even more so because no one understands why they're doing things a certain way or acting a certain way or whatever it is. Um, so you really can't judge, right? The, 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 the person who walks down the street who, you know, quote unquote, you know, doesn't look like they have a disability, um, and, uh, you know, against someone who has an obvious disability, you really don't know how they internalize it and um, how it impacts their lives, right? And that's something I had to learn early on is that it's not disability Olympics. It's not that one of us has a worse quote unquote disability than the other or a better, right? Or it's a really personal experience. And so I think for me, disability pride is being proud of who you are accepting your disability, accepting it as part of your uniqueness and your amazingness and your ability, your diversity. And I really see disability as adding to the strength of our community, right? Just like race and ethnicity, um, you know, and, and age and all these other things that make up the unique and, and, and complicated, you know, complexity of the diversity in our community, disability is part of that. And it's something that we should be proud of. It's something that we um, will experience um, if we live long enough, frankly, right? Whether you're born with it, whether you acquire it, whether you age into it as an older adult, whether it's temporary or it's permanent or it's a friend or a family, disability is part of the human experience. And I think that's, that's disability pride is understanding that. It's not good or bad, it just is. 
I love your statement. It isn't good or bad. It just is what it is because that's, you know, I, I feel like that toward my disability, my whole life, I've had people, you know, say, Oh, I'm praying for you. Oh, I'm so sorry. You have a disability. And it's just like, eh, it is what it is. And for me, at least it's all I ever know. However, that's been a really interesting and, and somewhat disjointed journey for me. Um, when I was growing up, not having a lot of other people in my life with disabilities around me, I think that I, especially in my teenage years, became really obsessed with the idea of trying to assimilate into able-bodied society as much as I could. Like something that comes to mind for me is when I was a senior in high school and I had my senior portraits taken, you know, next to the tree and in the field and what everybody does when they have their senior pictures taken. I insisted that I not be seen in my wheelchair in any of those pictures. So, and that was very, very important to me and something that, and now like I think back on that and it just makes me cringe. I just cringe at myself for like, but I was that like ashamed that I didn't want in the permanent annals of the yearbook or whatever, that I was the one with the wheelchair, even though everybody knew that I was. Um, and, you know, just the things, body acceptance, um, mm -hmm. I think was really hard for me because my body is very different. And, and I grew up with a, a very prim and proper mother who for many, many years pinned shoulder pads into all my clothes. So it looked like my shoulders were quote unquote normal. Um, and, you know, I got messages. I didn't date all through school. I thought that I was very unattractive and that nobody would ever want to be with a girl with a wheelchair. So I think that all of these sort of the external messages that I got throughout my growing up um, really never gave me much inspiration to be proud of my disability. I think I definitely just kind of looked at it as it is what it is. And it's taken me really until my 40s to realize that that my disability has informed all of the decisions in my life. And it has made me who I am as a human being, but, and that I'm proud of that. And I love that. And, you know, if somebody came up to me tomorrow and offered me a pill that would, you know, take my whole disability away and I could do everything that everybody else could do. I don't think I would probably even take it because I figured out my life the way it is. That would be a lot of change really quick. All right. And and really, so I think that that's, that's really kind of where disability pride was not something that was instilled in me. It, what was instilled in me and what I spent the majority of my life doing was trying to be as undisabled as possible with a completely obvious disability, which is ridiculous when I say it out loud to you, but, but it's well, true. You said a couple really interesting things, Kim. So, right. I've heard that whole saying where, you know, when, when I was newly injured, there were some mentors that would like come into the hospital room. There were people who used wheelchairs, right. That were like, Hey, there's life after disability kind of a thing. Um, and I remember one of them saying that where they're like, you know, even if I could change in, you know, my disability, if I could, you know, get some cure and walk 
out of my wheelchair and not have to use it, I wouldn't do it. And I remember being young to my disability and being like, no way. I don't believe you. I don't understand what you're saying. And I will never be in that position. I would always take the option to, for the cure and to be able to walk. But I totally get it now. It's really interesting, right? Because as you go through life, you realize that you can't separate yourself from your disability, right? Like you explained, it's like all your life experiences have been impacted and influenced, right? Where you are today. And look at you, you're a deputy director of a state department. You are influencing the lives of, you know, thousands and millions of people, right? And how do you separate that? Right. So, you know, and, and that's basically where I'm coming from now. It's like, I can't really separate my disability experience. I've had some amazing experiences. I've traveled the world and I've done been to beautiful places. And, you know, I have a family and a 10 year old and all a great job and all these things that like have been driven by passion that has been generated from my disability. So I don't know that I would change that either at this point. Right. And, you know, it's interesting because you, you probably get this too. I still get it to this day where, you know, you see someone on the street and they, they say, oh, what happened to you? Oh, um, well, if there's a cure, you know, oh, I pray for you. And, you know, I hope if there's a cure that it will help, um, that you'll be able to walk again. And what's interesting is at this point in my life, I don't think about that. Like I had to move on and see my life with a disability in order to be where I am. Yeah. And, and I feel like that drives the work that I think that you and I both do now. I think that being able to look at, you know, kick-ass women like us can really benefit people, can really benefit families, can benefit young people. um, So they don't have to grow up without that that mentorship and, and the parents, I mean, having a child and not knowing what's going to happen with that child is terrifying and being able to look at an adult and say, Oh, well, maybe my kid can do those awesome things some days is so important. And I think that that's really for me at this point in my life, where I derive a lot of my disability pride Mm -hmm. is I just am proud of what I have done. I'm proud of my achievements and I want to be able to see other people be able to achieve those things. So I got my first power wheelchair when I was six and I remember just being able to do so many things with other kids at that point, whether it was at school, there was a Creek behind our house and I would drive my power wheelchair down into the Creek with all my friends and get it stuck there. And my parents would have to come and pull it out and I'd be in all kinds of trouble. But, but I I think that we need to get past this mentality that, that wheelchairs or, or any kind of adaptive technology, any kind of durable medical equipment as being, you know, the metal prison that Jerry Lewis talked about Mm -hmm. um, many years ago, Um, because it, it gives us freedom. It gives us the, the freedom to do things. And, and when you're six years old and never been able to go anywhere or really on your own before, that was incredible for me. So, I mean, can you imagine what our lives would be without our assistive technology, without our wheelchairs, right? Well, Anna, thanks so much for having this conversation. I think that, you know, I value 
I value you and I value our department and I value all of the people that I work with that have disabilities now because I learned something new in all of these conversations and and I'm just so appreciative of that. Thank you so much, Kim. And, and you know, right back at you. Um, so appreciative to be able to work with people like you and others at the department and throughout the state. Um, you know, it's I'm just thankful to be able to work in an area that I'm passionate about um, that, um, you know, can make a difference for so many people. Um, and, you know, just remember that normal is just a setting on your clothes dryer. That was Anna Acton, the Deputy Director of Independent Living and Community Access Division at the California Department of Rehabilitation, or DOR, in conversation with Kim Rutledge, the Deputy Director of Legislation and Communications at DOR. They spoke as part of DOR's celebration of Disability Pride Month, which just wrapped up yesterday. In addition to this conversation, DOR hosted a panel discussion on Disability Pride, which featured my co-host Carl Sigmund as a panelist. We will link to the recording of that event on our website, freed.org slash disabilitywrap. And that does it for this show. Disability Wrap is produced and edited by Carl Sigmund. Special thanks to DOR's Cynthia Butler for sharing today's audio with us and to Courtney Williams for her support. To listen to this show again, go to freed.org slash disabilitywrap or wherever you get your podcasts. We're brought to you by KVMR in partnership with Freed and we're distributed by PRX, the public radio exchange. I'm Carly Pacheco for another edition of Disability Wrap.